Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you. Amen. Would you stand once again for the reading of more of God's Word? I'm reading from Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that while he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were opened, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas, a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said, Go, for I have chosen, or he is a chosen instrument, instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings of the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized, and he took food, and he was strengthened. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We've just heard one of the best-known stories in all of the New Testament. In fact, it's so popular that there are three versions of this same story in the book of Acts by itself. The one here in chapter 9, which is told from the perspective of the narrator, Luke, and then in chapters 22 and 26, two separate tellings of the story from Paul, or later he'll be called Paul, and I'm going to get that mixed up in the sermon, just know now Saul is Paul, Paul is Saul. Uh, he, he, He tells the story himself two different ways, two different times to two different audiences, And then later on in his letters to the churches in Asia Minor and the churches in Greece, he will reference this occasion again as a foundational part of his identity. Even those people who don't read the Bible very much, I know that doesn't include many of you, but like 
there's people out there that don't read the Bible very much, and, and when you say something like Damascus Road Experience, people oftentimes know what you're talking about. Damascus Road Experience has come to be kind of like a phrase that represents something like an epiphany, or when you have your mind changed about something, you've had a Damascus Road Experience, you've changed your ways. The dangerous thing, though, about cliches is that the original events that they're based upon easily lose their power, lose their uniqueness for the sake of the principle or the the moral of the story. But what we have before us in this text is the story of Saul's encounter with Jesus, and it is anything but cliche. It is the prime example of the relentless grace of God and what can happen when a person, even the most stubborn person, surrenders to God's grace. It's a unique story, isn't it? Like God doesn't normally show up and turn you blind so that you encounter him. Anyone had that happen to them in recent history? Were you walking on the road? No, it's a unique thing. So this isn't like the way that we typically come to know Jesus by being met on the road and shining lights and being blind. And as unique as it is, though, it's still like our story. It's still our story because The same Jesus that encountered Paul or Saul on the Damascus Road is the same God who pursues us and and lovingly hunts us down so that we might find new life. As we go through the text, then, what I'm going to do is try to attempt to walk this fine line of maintaining the uniqueness of Saul's story while also encouraging us to consider the ways that Jesus arrests and convicts and invites us to a lifestyle of ever converting to his way. Um, Let's start with the context, kind of get the picture. You may recall that two chapters ago, Acts chapter seven, we read the story of Stephen. He was on trial before the religious authorities in Jerusalem. Stephen was a a Greek-born man, a Greek-speaking man, who was a convert to Judaism at some point in his life, and was part of a a Greek-speaking synagogue in Jerusalem. And this Stephen became a disciple of Jesus and was still part of this synagogue and talked about Jesus in that context. And he was accused by the leaders of this synagogue in Jerusalem for doing a a bunch of things, but mainly speaking, uh, apparently, against the temple of God and speaking against the law of God. Now, While this is going on, the young Saul of Tarsus, who is likely part of that Greek-speaking synagogue, Saul of Tarsus, Tarsus is a Greek-speaking place, and uh, Josephus tells us that Saul's mother, uh, first of all, his sister moved to Jerusalem, and then his mother and young Saul followed, and they moved to Jerusalem. So Saul is a Roman citizen, born in Tarsus, he's Greek-speaking, he's well-educated in the way of Judaism, in the way of God's law, and he moves to uh, Jerusalem in Israel. And when Stephen is stoned to death, Saul was there holding the coats of the people who were throwing the rocks, and the scriptures tell us in Acts 7 that Saul was in hearty agreement with what was going on with Stephen. Now in chapter 8, we kind of lose track of Saul for a little while, and we follow the ministry of the Holy Spirit through the work of Philip, who is another Greek-speaking Jewish convert to the way or to Christianity, and we see how 
through his ministry, uh, the gospel of Jesus goes to the Samaritans, and then it goes to Ethiopia via this court official, and then it goes up the coast of all Judea through the power of the Spirit and the obedience of the church and the obedience of Philip. Now we're back in chapter 9. And the gospel by this time has already spread from chapter 7 to chapter 9. It's already spread 135 miles north of Jerusalem to the city of Damascus in modern-day Syria. We learn in the opening verses that Saul is still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of Jesus. Now here's the danger. We all know Paul, the apostle, the great guy who wrote Romans and Galatians and Ephesians and all of those letters, and he's like this major player in the history of the church, and it's so easy to just jump from this story to Apostle Paul. Let's not do that too quickly. He gave us most of the letters of the New Testament, but part of being diligent readers is to sit with the reality that before Paul was an apostle, he was angry, he was self-righteous, and he saw violence as an appropriate means to support God's law. Saul saw the way of Jesus as a threat to all he had personally built his life upon. The The righteousness of the one God of Israel as interpreted by his school of Pharisees in the mid-first century. When this new sect of Judaism began claiming that Jesus, who had been arrested, convicted, and crucified by the Romans, had risen from the grave, and when he saw that this sect of Judaism called the Way at first began to worship this Jesus, claiming that the sacrificial system was null and void, Claiming things like the Sabbath was fulfilled in this Jesus, this criminal who was crucified. No, 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 no. Paul was not going to have it. Sorry, Saul was not going to have it. And in his zeal and in his what he thought was following God, he was going to hunt them down and put an end to this. He was so zealous that many scholars think that he was in his 20s, probably late 20s at this point in time. Uh, By the way, like, you know, you become a man at your bar mitzvah at 13 but in the real world, you're really not respected until you're about 30 as a man, okay, in this world. So he's in his probably mid-late 20s at this time, and he's so zealous that he has the gumption to go up to the high priest and say, I've got this thing on my heart. I want letters of authority so I can go hunt down these followers of the way who are outside Jerusalem, and I'll drag them back, and you can do what you did to Stephen with them. Saul believes he sees the situation so clearly. He believes he knows the truth and that he is God's servant doing God's will. And so he sets out toward Damascus and Syria with others who are loyal to his cause. He, uh, his whole intent is to arrest the followers of the way when all of the sudden, the Lord of the way arrests Saul. Now, usually, when I hear the word arrest or arrested, I automatically think negative. I think of someone being arrested by a police officer or, you know, a law enforcement. I think of someone being uh, maybe wrongly arrested. Uh, I think of um, someone arrested for doing something wrong. Um, 
being arrested against my will, and of course the obligatory arrested development, also not a positive necessarily way to live your life. Um, But being arrested isn't always a bad thing. Like if you're in high angle rescue or you're rock climbing, you want your belay to arrest your fall. If something goes wrong and you slip and you're falling, or or if you're in a car and you have your safety restraint, right, your your seatbelt, you want that to arrest your forward motion if you rear in somebody, right? You don't want to hit the windshield. Saul was a man who thought he was very much in the right, which makes him just the kind of person who is very dangerous to himself and to people around him. He was heading down a course in his life where he was about to make some decisions and have some life and some blood on his hands from which he may have a very difficult time coming back from. And so Jesus arrests him, not to judge him, but to save him. Jesus arrests, not to judge us, but to save us. Blinding light from heaven, Saul falls to the ground. By his own account, in other accounts of this story, he experiences the flesh and blood, living, reigning, resurrected Jesus. This is not a vision. This is not an ethereal ambiguous flash of light where it's just a voice from heaven. He sees the risen and reigning one. This, this is life tra- transforming for him. Then this voice, the voice of Jesus, comes out and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Look how aligned Jesus is with his people. You know, we often call the church the body of Christ, and I wonder if I take that seriously enough, if if we take that seriously enough, because when Saul was persecuting the church, Jesus said, Saul, you're persecuting me. Saul doesn't yet know what's going on. He's completely disoriented. His mind won't let him believe that it's really Jesus in front of him. And his eyes won't work now anyway, once he's seen it at first. So he calls out into the flash of light in response to the voice, who are you, Lord? Now, just real quick, the term Lord in Greek is typically the way you say sir. And so Saul has not yet come to know Jesus as the Lord, like all four capitals where that's Lord and God and King and Messiah. He's, He's not there theologically yet. So he's just like, sir, who are you? Crazy light guy and Guy I saw crucified and now you're standing in front of me like, who is this really? What's going on? What, what wizardry is this? And in one answer, Jesus confirms the witness of the way and the folly of Saul. He says, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. You know, the Greek sentence structure we have here is the sacred ego emi construction for the words I am. This is the same way that Yahweh reveals himself to Moses when Moses says, hey, you're sending me to Pharaoh. Who am I supposed to say sent me? They're just gonna laugh at me. I can't even talk well. And God just says, you tell them I am who I am sent you. And when the Hebrew of that passage is translated into Greek, it's ego emi, I am sent you. In John's gospel, we read of Jesus referencing himself as the ego emi, the I am, alluding to the fact that he's not merely a man like a prophet sent from God. He's not even merely the Messiah, but he is God himself. Yahweh talks like that. Yahweh uses language like ego emi. 
So here Jesus is arresting Saul, not only physically in a show of light and blinding him, but he's arresting him theologically. He's encountering the living God on this road. So in this great act of mercy, Jesus hunts down the hunter and arrests the arrester. He reveals himself in a way that challenges Saul's theological assumptions. He he's believed that the followers of the way were the enemies of God, but now he's confronted with a brand new reality, that the followers of the way are the new people of God, and to persecute one is to persecute the other. Sometimes being arrested is a mercy, stopping us in our tracks before we can do more harm than good. Jesus arrests Saul by revealing himself in person, but also by blinding him. That's significant. One moment Saul is marching over confidently toward Damascus. Have you ever met, sorry guys if you're in your 20s, but like have you ever met a guy in their 20s? Yeah, it's like you, you, just, you pretty much know everything. Uh, so he, here, here's Saul, he's upwardly mobile, he's got everything figured out, and he's marching toward Damascus to do God's work, man. And now, all of a sudden, he's brought very low. Most experts believe Saul was on the fast track toward leadership in the religious system in Jerusalem. Scholars speculate that he was from a, a family of wealth and means because he was a student of the great Rabbi Gamaliel. And he had the resources to take a journey on like this one with helpers with him uh, that would have cost, cost money that a normal person wouldn't just have. The fact that he got a favorable audience with the high priest implies that Paul was already well-known and already well-respected. My point is that Paul is young and confident and trending upward on the social ladder. But in in, in just an instant, he's brought literally to his knees. He who is leading a charge against the follower of Jesus is now being led by the hand, the scripture says, like a little child because he literally can't see anymore. God took away his crutches of confidence, his scaffolding of self-sufficiency, so that Saul could have an opportunity to wake up, to come to his senses. Hear me, I am am not saying that God causes bad things in our lives in order to make us come to our senses. Just saying those words right now, like, it kind of reeks, um, as something you should never say. You, you just can't know. So that is not what I, what I am saying. But what I am saying is that things happen in our lives, don't they, that do humble us, that do bring us low. And what if we were able to have perspective to see those opportun- as opportunities to reflect? Not saying that God imposes these things on us, but to say, okay, I'm sick, or I've just got a new job change, meaning they repositioned me, meaning I don't have a job anymore. You know what I mean? It's like these things happen to us. We have loss in our lives, and, and, and we're brought low, and what if we're able to just take that moment? Is okay, what if God is doing something new? What if my career gets rearranged, and I get to think now creatively with God, what am I doing with my life? Like, when we're nine to five, and we're just doing what we've been doing day after day, year after year, we don't usually ask God, like, Am I still doing what you want me to do? But sometimes there, there, there's, there's opportunity to say, yeah, God, what do you want me to do? How did you create me? 
Is there a new thing you're doing in my life, a new direction? Take injury or illness. Nobody likes it. Nobody asks for it. But there it is, a forced lying down, a refocusing of perspective. Things we took for granted suddenly seem like gifts, and we have an opportunity to grow with God in that moment. Have you ever had your life arrested or experienced the grace of God in that moment? Maybe your experience of form uh, of having your life arrested right now altered somehow, even in this moment. How might you turn that unwelcome roadblock into an opportunity to seek direction and perspective of Jesus? Well, let's see how it plays out for Paul, for Saul. See, he wasn't just arrested by Jesus. He was also convicted. You know, it's easy to read the story and to think that one moment, Saul is all about his business and then suddenly Jesus appears at this road and out of the blue, Saul has this come to Jesus moment. That he turns from persecutor of the way to leader of the way in one moment in one encounter of the road. But that's not the story at all. In chapter 26, Paul, this time is the Apostle Paul by chapter 26, and he was on trial before King Agrippa, and he's telling the story of this Damascus Road experience, and he adds a line that's not in Luke's version. So Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then Jesus also says, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Any shepherds out there? Yeah, a goad is like this sharp stick thing that ancient shepherds would use. Maybe they still do. I'm not a shepherd. I just read about this stuff, but they poke or encourage the animal to move where they want it to move, right? And some of them had a crook on them, but they all had a point on them, and that's a goad. And he says, it's hard for you to kick against the goad. Like, I'm trying to get you to go, and you're kicking back at me. Like, that's not going to work out well for you. And by the time that this is in in, in the mid-first century, that kicking against the goads, it was kind of a saying. It's something you might say like, resistance is futile, or, you know, like, it's like your kid, you want them to eat the broccoli, and they don't eat the broccoli, and and you say, you know, uh, you gotta eat your broccoli. I hate broccoli. Well, that's not gonna go well for you, or resistance is futile, or it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Like, that's what an ancient parent might say. My point is this, Jesus has been working in Saul's life well before the moment on the road. Jesus has been lovingly goading Saul like a good shepherd, and Saul has been resisting eating his broccoli, so to speak, right? What were these goads? Well, we don't know for sure, but here are some ideas that I have that are pretty scriptural. Um, Some memories, I believe, came to mind for Saul when he was arrested and humbled by this blindness. I think Saul was goaded by nagging doubts about what had happened with Stephen. As he's holding the coats of his comrades, as they are now throwing rocks to violently crush the skull of Stephen, a man who likely was in the same synagogue of the freedmen as Saul was, he couldn't help but notice, I think, that Stephen was at peace that he was more like God in that moment being stoned than the godly men who were throwing the stones. 
And in this moment of being arrested, I wonder if Saul was able to reflect on seeing the face of Jesus in the face of Stephen. And I think Saul was goaded by the teachings of Jesus. As an up-and-comer in the Jewish community, there is hardly a doubt in my mind or many scholars' minds that Saul would have heard Jesus preach before, would have seen him in public, was certainly there or around the trial. And and Jesus' word has a way of messing with you. It's like one of those horrible songs that your kids listen to sometimes, and it's like one of those mind worms that gets in there. It's better than that, though. That was a bad analogy, but you know, the word, the word of God has a way of just getting under your skin and, and messing with your life. His truth and his grace, his way of teaching, his way of being with people, if Saul saw that, I think that's one of those goads that he's kicking against, that maybe this Jesus isn't all bad, even though his theology wasn't lining up. You can try and ignore the teachings of Jesus, but you can't get it out of your system. You you can run from his love, but you can't hide. And so I wonder if Saul was goaded by the haunting words and way of Jesus. Then there's the event of the flashing light. You know, Nancy read the scripture earlier from Isaiah 6. That's an, I had her read that because it's a magnificent story, but also it's an example of what happens when a prophet is called. And they encounter the living God and fall to the knees and have a sense of their own impurity before God. This happens to Jeremiah, happens to Ezekiel, happens in extra-biblical literature like uh, two Maccabees, three Maccabees. it's, It's kind of stock imagery. And so Saul, who knows the scriptures and knows these stories, is having this encounter like an Isaiah, like a Jeremiah, like an Ezekiel. A goad. But most of all, I have a feeling that if Saul was a human being, and I'm working under the assumption that he is a human being, then he was also convicted of his own sin. I think that was the primary goad in his life. I went skiing with my little brother. Well, he's only four or five years younger than me. Just the two of us. We went last Friday to Whistler, just a day trip up and back. And so on the way back to keep each other awake, uh, I was driving and he was DJing. And we both have kind of eclectic musical tastes. And so we were doing the thing where it's like, oh, have you heard this song? And then he would look it up on like Apple Music and play it. And then he would say, Do you, have you heard this song? And he would play me a song. And he introduced me to a band. He's kind of into Americana right now called The Devil Makes Three. Anyone heard of this band, The Devil Makes Three? Okay, Uh, yeah, anyway, it's by no means a Christian band, uh, but their lyrics, man, they're some of the most honest lyrics, refreshingly, raw, honest lyrics that I've heard in a long time. Way more honest, actually, than most of the songs you're gonna hear on Christian radio, by the way. But anyway, um, one of their songs came to mind as I was reflecting on the story with Saul and the goad of his moral conscience, and it's called Deep Down. And the lyrics go like this. Deep down in my heart, I'm a terrible man. Deep down in my heart, I know what I am. I'm a local leader. I pay my parking meter. I know everybody in this town. I'm your neighbor. I have labored in all my work here. You can ask around. I'm at church on Sunday, work on Monday. Tuesday, I got Friday on my mind. I got a dollar to lend, an hour to spend. For my friends, I've always got the time. This is a good guy. This is you and me. This is doing the right stuff, the right people. Everybody thinks that this is a good guy investing in the community, 
Heck, this could be me. But this could also be me. But deep in my heart, deep in my heart, I'm a terrible man. Deep down in my heart, I know what I am. That's that nagging goad of the moral conscience. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul would later write about his flawless adherence to the law when he was a 20-something Pharisee. And yet compared to knowing Jesus and his forgiveness for the things that the external law can't cover, all dog done, done compared to that. See, if we aren't careful, we'll get so focused on living a good life that we'll feel a growing sense of disassociation between feeling like that terrible person we know we are on the inside with our mixed motives and the way that we look at people and the things, the thoughts that we have on our darkest moments and the facade of the person that we want people to see, the facade of the person that we want ourselves to believe we are. We put on the mask of being a good person while having to live with the reality that we're still quite fallen and prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, as the great hymn so refreshingly and honestly says. Self-sufficient, self-righteous Saul was convicted by the goad of his moral conscience. On the outside, you could not find a more model citizen, more model Jew, a man to be admired, a man to be revered, but on the inside, I imagine if he was a human being, he's troubled by mixed motives and fears and anger. And when Zechariah in Luke 1 doubted the ability of God to have his old wife expecting with a child, you know, the angel Gabriel took away not his sight but his speech. And during that season of silence, Zechariah was arrested from his life as usual. The seeds of faith germinated, and by the time his son, who would be John the Baptist, was born, Zechariah came to see the work of the Lord in his life. In Acts 9, the arrest of Saul led to the opportunity for him to reflect on his goads of his previous encounters with Jesus and his own doubts and his own moral compass, and he was convicted of his sin. And he was desperate to do something more than following the rules or advancing in the religious system. He needed Jesus. He needed this man who spoke truer than he'd ever heard before in that road to Damascus. We know this because Saul fasted for three days, which was a common way to show repentance in the ancient Jewish custom. His blindness was imposed on him, but not taking food and drink for three days, that was all on Saul. And this is a move of repentance. You know, some people have an encounter with Jesus, they get convicted, that's two steps, an arrest, a conviction, and then they say, no thanks. I'm not having any of it. I'm angry at you. Why did you get in my way? Why did you mess up my life? Why did you derail me? I had a good thing going. I can do this without you. And there's no repentance. There's anger and there's resistance and there's kicking against the goads, but in this moment, Saul is finally broken down. And we see that third step of repentance. And that's the only way it's the only way to start the work of God in his life. You know, sometimes preachers and teachers talk about 
conversion to Jesus as a once in a lifetime event. You repent and then you get baptized and that's it, you're good to go and then just do your Christian thing. (laughs) I don't know why I said it like that. But that's not how faith in Jesus is ever described in scripture and it sure has never been my experience both as an individual and as a pastor walking through this with other people. It's just not reality. Yes, there are distinct times of turning, of repenting, of surrender. There's Damascus Road experiences in our lives. But the way of following Jesus is a lifelong journey of little surrenders all the time. It is to be ever converting to follow Jesus on the way. We're not saved by Jesus so we can just have our personalities scrubbed clean and then Jesus puts us on a trophy all clean and and useless. We're saved with our faults mixed in with our strengths so that we can be in play, in the world as God's agents. Jesus has reached out to Saul and arrested him so that he would become the man who would bring the gospel to the world. Saul's unique background, his training, his education, even his passionate zeal, it wasn't evil. It was just completely misguided. But Jesus took Saul and invited him into a life of service. He would teach Saul slowly but surely, how to die daily to his own impulses so that he could be a formidable agent in God's kingdom. If you're here this evening and you have been kicking against the goads, if you've been resisting the irresistible grace of Jesus, let me encourage you to surrender to him. The small death to the facade, I'm sorry, of your self-sufficiency will pale in comparison to the freedom of forgiveness and purpose and eternal security you'll experience with Christ. And if you, like Saul, are seeing Jesus clearly in this moment and you want to experience the waters of baptism like he did, let's talk, like right after the service, like let's, let's, let's talk. This isn't theory. This is us choosing to follow Christ. Maybe you're here this evening having already experienced the waters of baptism and the fellowship of Jesus, but maybe you've become stagnant or, or just feeling lost. Could it, be, could it be that Jesus is goading you, uh, encouraging you to follow him deeper in holiness and further in mission? As we transition to the table, I want to offer this space of silence for us to Pretend that we can't see or speak. Let this be a moment of arresting. And if we're convicted by how Jesus is goading us, let it be a moment of confessing and choosing afresh what he's saying. And then I'll lead us in the words of institution at the table. So let this be our prayer of arrest and conviction and confession.